Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, first chapter 2, verse 25, and then chapter 3, verses 16, 6 through 13, and verse 21. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. Uh, I didn't introduce myself before. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer, and it's good to see so many of you. We are this fall, if you can call it fall yet, it still feels like summer, going to be going through uh, the entire Old Testament story, beginning right here at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And for the next year or so, actually, we're going to kind of take our way and go slowly through this this story as it develops and as as God begins to reveal more and more of himself to us uh, throughout throughout these ancient stories uh, that belong to even us as the people of God. Now, the obvious question, four weeks in, for some of you might be something like this. What do these stories have to do with my life? And the answer might surprise you, because we are all connected to this story, particular here in Genesis 3, in a very real way. The Child's Catechism, which our children have been memorizing in their classes this summer. I hope you know that if you're parents of the children. Uh, if not, maybe we have some communication still to work out. Uh, the Child's Catechism asks the question, did Adam act for himself alone in his sin? And the, and the Catechism answers the question, no. And some of the kids are in here, maybe they know it. He represented... There you go. Look at the boys in the front row. Rock on. Right? He represented the whole human race. The very next question asks, what effect did Adam's sin have on you in the whole human race? And the answer is, we are all born. How about it? This was not planned, I promise, okay? <laughs> they just, they've been planted by somebody up here. I didn't even know. We're all born guilty and sinful. In other words, in other words, there's a direct connection between what happens here in this story in Genesis 3 and our everyday lives. That we are all born and go through our life bearing the guilt and the curse of the first sin. Now you might think that hardly seems fair. (laughs) How could God hold me responsible for somebody else's wrongdoing? And I would have you pay careful attention to the passage in Romans 5, which I included as an assurance of pardon for us this morning. Where Paul, the apostle, says, verse 12, and it's there in your worship folder if you want to look back. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, Adam's sin opened Pandora's box, unleashing all the evil we now find in the world and made us liable to corruption and ultimately to death. But you see it, how is it that we could be held liable for one man's sin? And the answer is that Adam did not act for himself alone. He represented you and me and the whole human race so that when Adam sinned, we were in him. We were spiritually there in the garden, in other words. So Paul says, in Adam, all sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned. We all participated in Adam's sin, and therefore we all experienced the fallout and the consequences of that sin. Now, this morning we want to look a little more carefully at what happened immediately after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Because what happens here in the story in Genesis 3 is still happening all the time, every day, in all of our lives. And if you've been around this church for very long, I have bad, maybe not bad news, but I need to just warn you, this morning will probably feel like review. I have people ask me all the time, how, you know, isn't it hard to get up there week after week and have to find something to say? And I thought, you know, what's hard about preaching is not coming up with something new to say every week. What's hard about it is figuring out how to say the same thing but say it in a new way every week. Okay? Because what we're going to see here at the very beginning of human history is the ground zero of all of the emotional and relational dysfunction we experience as we go throughout our lives. This, this, what Adam and Eve do here, this is the problem behind all the problems. This is the thing we can't seem to get right, that unless we get it right, everything is wrong. What I've called the struggle for righteousness. So I want to see three things from this passage about the struggle for righteousness. I want you first to see that we need a righteousness. We're naked. We need a righteousness. Secondly, I want you to see, when we become awakened to our need for a righteousness, what our solution is, okay? What do Adam and Eve do when they realize they're naked? They begin to sew fig leaves together. So there's a, we have a need for righteousness. We have a practical, kind of normal, human solution to that need for righteousness, which doesn't work. And then thirdly, I want you to see God's solution, which I've called the righteousness of faith, Okay? So those three points as we walk our way through this, this story. We need a righteousness, which is our solution, which doesn't work, and God's solution, which ultimately is the one that works. So uh, let's dig into this a little bit. Okay, the first thing we see in this passage is that we need a righteousness. Now, it's not always been this way. Look there at verse, two of cha- or verse 25 of chapter 2. There was a time when the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. And I've got to be honest, I've never experienced that, but they did. Right? They were naked and not embarrassed. They were naked and not timid. They didn't hide their nakedness from one another, right? They were naked and they didn't even know they were naked. Can you imagine that? Our theological creeds and catechisms refer to this as our original righteousness. And that word righteousness means right. It refers to an object, in this case a man and a woman, who or an object that is and does what it was made and supposed to be and do. Adam and Eve were right. And then they reached out for the, for, for the forbidden fruit. And everything changed. Verse 7 of chapter 3, their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. They became, of their, they became aware of their nakedness. And what I want to get into, what, what does that mean? What is, what is Genesis trying to teach us? Through that phrase. Let me ask it this way. Without a show of hands. 
because we like to not embarrass people. How many of you have ever had a nightmare about being naked? It's kind of a general human thing, right? You show up for the first day of school and you realize you're in your underwear. Right, very common, right? But why is it so common? Psychologists all agree that this this dream or dreams like this expose uh, their function of our feeling shame and being afraid of being exposed. In other words, we're hiding and we're afraid of, some of us more than anything else in life, we're afraid of being found out, being known. We're afraid of being seen for what we really are rather than the self that we work so hard to project. And that's my personal theory about why so many naked dreams surround events like the first day of school, right? Because what's the first day of school all about? I mean, the first day of school is all about, I'm trying to make an impression, everything's got to be carefully chosen to form in other people a certain idea or image of the kind of person I am, or at least the kind of person I want other people to think I am. And then you show up and you realize, oh, I have no clothes on. Which is why the idea of showing up on the first day of school in your underwear is so terrifying, right? Because you can't hide. Now, the best illustration that I could come up with, maybe to make this kind of funny, but also to, to show a point, is, uh, and, and it really, they really are some of the best commercials that have ever aired, probably ever. I mean, they're, they're hilarious. But I don't know if you remember the old Southwest Airlines um, strand of commercials, the Want to Get Away commercials. Do you remember these? Want to Get Away? Right, and so a couple of my favorites, probably my favorite two of this whole line of commercials. The first is there's an office setting, and a woman sits down at the table with a coworker, and he's kind of sitting there, and out, kind of out of the blue, he says, "Maybe this isn't the best time to say this, but I, I think you're beautiful." And she obviously, she's obviously very flattered, and she kind of shyly replies, "Well, I've always been attracted to you too, Paul." And he looks at her with this look of surprise and confusion, and he grabs at the earpiece. That's on this side of his ear, and he says, honey, honey, wait a minute. What did you say? <laughs> right? Want to get away? <laughs> that's, that's what happens in the whole thing, right? And she's absolutely mortified. I mean, she's just look like, oh, completely embarrassed. She's caught, and there's nowhere to hide. And it's like, you can't like, ah, can I get those words back? And it's just too, they're gone. My other favorite, just for fun, two guys, there's another commercial. Two guys are playing uh, baseball. <laughs> the play- baseball video game, and the first guy stands up, and he's showing his friend, you know, with this controller, however you move the controller in your hands, that's what the, the, the avatar does on the screen, and so he's in the batter's box, and he's doing this with the controller, and he says, okay, now pitch me a ball, and the other guy takes the controller, oh, I'm going to knock something over, boom, and throws it at the TV, the TV smashes into a million pieces, falls down on top of the VCR, the DVD player, whatever it is, want to get away, you know, and that want to get away moment, is what the Bible means by nakedness. Nakedness means being vulnerable. It's being caught and having nowhere to go, no way of covering up, having no excuse to offer. And here in Genesis 3, we're told that Adam and Eve become aware of their nakedness. Their eyes were opened to their nakedness, and the result was they immediately began to feel shame. All of a sudden, they knew they weren't right. See, before, remember, they were right. But now all of a sudden they realize we're not right. We're not okay. They felt shame and embarrassment and condemnation. They had this foreboding sense that they had done something really stupid and there was no going back. They lost their original righteousness. But what does that mean for us? The reason those Southwest commercials were so successful, I think, is because every single one of us knows what it feels like, even if we've never done something as foolish as 
clicking on the sick of your job, exciting new job offer email that sends the virus through the entire office. We know we're not right. We go through life trying to convince ourselves that we're wrong about this feeling we have about ourselves, but no matter what we do, we can't quite shake it. We feel shame and embarrassment, not even about specific things, but just in general, we we can't shake this sense of condemnation. And the reason is we are spiritually naked. We may fool people, other people at least, into thinking better of us than is actually true, but before God, we are absolutely naked. We've sinned. We have offended our maker. We are guilty. We deserve the death that he's threatened. And there's nowhere for us to hide. There's no bush to dive behind. Listen to the way the Hebrews writer puts it in in his letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. F.F. Bruce who's a commentator, commenting on that verse in Hebrews 4, says, We may conceal our inner being from our neighbors, and we can even deceive ourselves, but nothing escapes the scrutiny of God. Before him, everything lies exposed and powerless, and it is with him, not with our fellow men or with our own conscience, that our final reckoning has to be made. Stripped of all disguise and protection, we are utterly at the mercy of God, the judge of all. You can't hide from God. He sees the submerged continents of pride and sin, the unedited thoughts, the hidden motivations and desires that are so corrupt and base we can barely acknowledge them to ourselves. All of those are an open book before his eyes. We have no defense which will exonerate us. His holiness demands a righteousness from us that we no longer have, nor will we be able to perform it no matter how sorry we might be. For our sins or how hard we might try to undo what has been done, we are naked and exposed and at his mercy. And we need a righteousness. So that's the problem. So what do we do? What do we do? What's our solution? Well, let's look here. What did Adam and Eve do in in the story? Verse 7. Okay. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. And what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What a great picture for us. Stanley Voke, who wrote a little article called The End of the Struggle, put it this way. I'm going to read. This is kind of a long quote, and I'm sorry. I know that's hard, but just bear with me. Okay, he says, There is in all of us a struggle to get and to keep our own righteousness. The struggle is as old as Adam and Eve, who, when charged with sin in Eden, at once made garments of fig leaves to give themselves some sort of covering from the holy eyes of God. By the time of the New Testament, the struggle was well underway, for the whole Jewish religion was developed as an attempt to achieve righteousness by works. Of the Jews of his day, Paul said, they were ever going about trying to establish their own righteousness, and we are all the same. And this is a great metaphor. He says, Have you ever watched children build a sandcastle on the beach before an incoming tide? Frantically, they heap up their walls, patting the soft sand into solidity and reinforcing it with sticks and stones, only to see it washed away at last. So we go round and round to establish our defenses against the waves of other people's criticisms. Life becomes one long struggle to be what we know all too well we are not. George Whitfield, a Methodist evangelist in colonial America, said something similar. He said, when a poor soul 
is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then that poor one, as soon as he is awakened and senses his need for righteousness, he says, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will change. I will do everything I can. And certainly God will have mercy on me. And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner went awake and flies to his duties and his performances to hide himself from God. Now this is fairly typical, the way Christians have understood this fig leaf strategy in Genesis chapter 3, that there is an impulse, and believe it or not, it's a sinful impulse. It is a sinful response to sin, that when we begin to awaken to our need for righteousness, when we have that want-to-get-away moment on an existential level and we're caught, that our immediate response is not what it should be. Our immediate response is to always make up, try to do some strategy to make up for the bad by being good. We get religion. And we fly to our duties and our performances, as Whitfield says, desperately trying to establish a righteousness of works. And it sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds right. Isn't that what you should do? But it's rebellious and it's sinful because, see, it's still me at the center. It's still me solving the problem. It's still me, the hero, coming to my rescue. We have a really big problem, and that is that Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, which we read a while ago, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, even... Our best efforts are stained by selfish motivations. Our very best righteous deeds are unrighteous. They're fig leaves, remember? Constantly, you know, needing to be readjusted. One big gust of wind away from being completely obsolete. And so, like the children at the beach, desperately trying to reinforce their sandcastle against the incoming tide... So we go through life trying to build a castle of righteousness that keeps crumbling in our hands and that could not possibly withstand the incoming tide of God's judgment and wrath. And it's a constant project. It's exhausting, and it's doomed to failure from the beginning. Another way of saying it would be that all of our self-salvation projects are sandcastles of righteousness. They're fragile. And therefore, um, because they're fragile, what keeps happening in the the interior life of the person who has adopted this strategy of trying to keep the fig leaves intact is there comes a profound insecurity and fear. Adam says, I was afraid, right? There's an insecurity and a fear and a despair that then outwardly begins to manifest itself in what Richard Lovelace calls a compulsive floating hostility towards other people. And if you're here and you're not a Christian... I want to explain something to you. This is, why, this is why church people can sometimes be so mean. They're not Christians. Because there's a difference between being a Christian and being somebody who's just grown up in a religious home, see? And I know that may sound harsh. I don't want to be harsh. I just, I have to put that before us. There's a reason why people sometimes in the church even, and if you've not become a pastor, if you don't know what I'm talking about, okay, then you'll experience this, Right? Okay, Jeff can probably amen. I mean, you know, if I mean, if, right? The reason that church people can be so mean is they're not resting in Christ. They're building sandcastles, and every little failure, every honest mistake, every hint of accusation, every compliment given to somebody else instead of me is like a wave threatening to reduce my righteousness to mush. And therefore, right, this compulsive floating hostility that's hypercritical of other people, creates competition, 
blame shifting. I mean, look, look what happens. What happens when God confronts the man? I heard a few of you chuckle when Susan read it, right? God comes to the man. Adam, what have you done? Look at his response, verse 12. Well, the woman you gave me, God. <laughs> What's he saying? It's, it's her, you're right. That's the sound of Adam throwing Eve under the bus, right? That's what he just did. The woman you gave me, God, it's her fault. But if you look at it, not only is he blaming Eve, who else is he blaming? God, the woman you gave me. It's not my fault, it's her fault, it's your fault. Everybody's fault, not my fault. Okay, Eve. Obviously, I'm not getting anywhere with Adam. Eve, what have you done? The serpent. Satan's fault. It's blame shifting. Pointing the finger at everybody else. Never allowing the finger to be pointed at me. And a lot of people who would call themselves Christians are, in reality, pe- people who've had a want-to-get-away moment in their life, and as a result, they've become religious. But Christianity is not fig leaf righteousness. George Whitfield, at the beginning of the passage from the sermon I quoted earlier, he says, before you can speak peace to your hearts... You must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, but you likewise must also be troubled over your best duties and performances. Another way of saying that is that a Christian is a person who repents and turns away from their sins and also repents and turns away and gives up on the hope of their righteousness. It's not enough to turn away from your sin if what you turn to is the hope that you can be good or moral or religious or at least better and more moral and more committed and more religious than others and that be your righteousness. See, Christians repent of their sins, of course, they also repent of their righteousness. They're troubled by their sins. They're also troubled by their best duties and performances because they know them to be holy and woefully inadequate, and thus they turn away from them and turn to God and embrace his solution. And what's his solution? Look down there. It's right all way down at the end in verse 21. What's, what's there in verse 21? Look what we read there. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And let me ask a question. Kids, think about this for a second. Where did God get skins to clothe Adam and Eve with? I mean, the implication is obvious, isn't it? Here in the garden, here at the very beginning of human history, there's a sacrifice. There's a substitute. And that's God's solution to our need for righteousness. Do you remember what the Lord said to Adam? Chapter 2. If Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he would surely die But you read the story and he doesn't die. Adam and Eve didn't die, but there is a death. There is blood that's shed, see, but it's the blood of a substitute. God took skins and covered them. But where did the skins come from? We don't know for sure, but presumably from one of the other, from the animals. But what we see here very clearly is, is this wonderful truth that God's solution is the life of an innocent in the place of the guilty. And that, of course is a foreshadowing of how God would ultimately deal and finally, ultimately and finally deal with our sin and shame in sending the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, not only to die as a substitute in our place on the cross for our sins, but also to live in our place in order to become our righteousness. There's a scene in the Gospels where Jesus is driven by God's Spirit out into the wilderness and Satan comes to him there. And when you read the story in Matthew 4... Can't help but think of this story. Satan comes to him and he tempts him. In much the same way that he tempts Adam here. Remember, what did, Adam, what did Satan try to get Adam and Eve to do? We said it last week. What was his goal? He produced a lie. 
that created unbelief in their hearts that caused them to act on their own apart from God, and it worked. It's really amazing. When Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, he does the same exact thing. He casts, he, he casts doubt in Jesus' heart about God's goodness to him, trying to get Jesus to act on his own will apart from his Father, but Jesus refuses. He doesn't turn the stone into bread. He refuses to abort the mission to go to the cross. He refuses to use his power and authority to act independently of his Father in heaven. And what's going on? How do you explain all these parables in the two stories? And the answer comes in what we heard a few minutes ago, that the church has long connected Jesus' obedience to the Father with Adam's sin and failure by designating him what the, what the church has called the second Adam. Paul in Romans 5 verse 14 says that Adam was a type of the one that was to come. That means in, that in order that salvation... Um, that means that the salvation, in order to understand the salvation that God is bringing in Jesus, and in order to understand Jesus' obedience and its effect in our lives, we have to understand Adam's sin and failure first and its effect. Because the two are connected to one another. See, Jesus' obedience is the solution to Adam's failure. We're not the solution to Adam's failure. I'm not. You're not. The second Adam is. See, The one who has come to do all that Adam and all the children of Adam have failed to do. The one who has come to be obedient where the rest of humanity has been disobedient. God came to the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. If I could say it this way, and I'm stealing a little bit from Tim Keller here. But he came to the first Adam in the Garden of Eden and he said, Obey me about the tree and you will live. Don't eat the fruit of the tree and you will live. And to the second Adam he said, Obey me about the tree and you will die. Obey me and I will curse you. I will send you to hell And in the wilderness, facing Satan all throughout his life, and ultimately in another garden, Jesus said, Yes, Father, I will obey you. See, sin began (laughs) in a garden where the first Adam said to the Lord God, Not your will, but mine be done. And salvation has come in another garden where the second Adam, in anguish of soul, blood oozing from his pores at the thought of the cross, said to his heavenly Father, Not my will yours be done. Sin began when the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree. Now salvation is coming when the second Adam obeys God about a tree. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you will live. The second Adam was told, obey me about the tree and I will nail you to it and I will destroy you on it. What Paul dares to say in Romans chapter 5 is if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in Christ. He is your federal head. So just as we are tied to Adam in his sin, see that verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Paul said. In other words, we experienced the fallout of Adam's sin, death and condemnation and so forth. Now we are also tied to the second Adam and his obedience. By the one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. And so we experience the fallout of his obedience, life and justification and blessing. Naturally, we are all in Adam. That means spiritually it is just as if we were there in the garden. His sin is our sin. But if you put your faith in Jesus and you turn away from not only your sins, but also your righteousness, you literally change locations. You change addresses. You're no longer in Adam. You're now in Christ. And that means spiritually it is just as if you were there with him on the cross, there with him in his resurrection, and even now are there with him in heavenly places. See, his obedience is our obedience. But did you see it there in Romans 5? 
through the obedience of one man, we are all made righteous. This, there's the righteousness that we need. The righteousness of faith. So Stanley Vogt, in the article I already referenced, he goes on to say, Christ is the end of the struggle for righteousness. There's nothing more to struggle about, for he has done all for us, and God asks nothing more but our repentance and faith. The only way to get rid of sin is to admit it. Why is this so hard? Surely because it means letting go of our own righteousness, which is the very thing we do not like doing. Jesus is our perfect righteousness. When we come to him, we need no other. The struggle for righteousness is over, and he becomes our reputation and glory. We need not fear to come to the sinner's place. By that he means we need not fear to be known and be exposed and to be naked. For when we do, it is to cease from our own works, to stop trying to be what we are not, and to admit, to admit what we are instead. In other words, the only thing you need, the solution to this search for righteousness, this struggle, the only thing you need to find a righteousness that can cover your nakedness is nothing. The only thing you need is nothing, but that's the one thing none of us have. And that's how you know you're a Christian. See, you run out of strategies and excuses and you come to nothing and then you bring your nothingness to God and you let him clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus. Now let me ask one more question then I'm done. What difference would that make or what difference should that make? If what it means to become a Christian is to come to nothing, to come to nothing and to take your nothingness to him, well then... There's no boasting, right? There's no blame shifting. It can't be. There's no floating compulsive hostility that condemns others and is hypercritical. If through Jesus' obedience I am made righteous, and it is a righteousness that can't be improved upon, then on the one hand I'm completely secure, right? My life is fortified against the waves of criticism or self-doubt and condemnation and fear that might threaten me. My life is characterized then by honest confession and repentance, not boasting and blame shifting, but... If it is Jesus' obedience that makes me righteous, not anything I do, if I do nothing, then I can't help but be humble either, right? Absolute security, and at the same time, absolute humility. That's the peace that George Whitfield talked about that can come into your heart. It's the mark of a person who is not only troubled over their sins, but also troubled over their righteousness. And it's only when you are troubled over both of those things that the peace will come. And when the peace comes... It's the peace that ends the struggle for righteousness. Now, where would you say, Lord, I believe? Help my unbelief. It's that place right there where you need to deal with him this morning as we come to this table. And so let's pray uh, as we prepare to come. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we would love to be able to lay before you all the ways that we have tried to do good and to change our lives and to make up for the bad and the wrong that we've done by the best of intentions. But if we were honest and if we took a long enough, a deep enough look into our own hearts, we would realize that the selfishness that characterizes our sin is the very thing that characterizes all of our religious commitments to you. That we hate the idea of having nothing, that we are insistent that there must be something, there must be some shred of of good intention in our life that would cause you to, to look at us and to say, man, I'm, I, that is great. When in reality, there is nothing. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And yet, that is not, that's not 
a cause for despairing. It's not the end uh, of life for us because the promise of the gospel is, is that it is at that moment where we can reach out and embrace the provision that you have made for us in Jesus Christ and to flood our life with hope and peace and joy. And so I pray this morning that we would be found by you to be a people that, that do uh, repent of our sins, but also people that repent of our righteousness, that we might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and find the peace uh, that our hearts so desperately need to end our building of sandcastles before the incoming tide, but to finally be completely secure, completely humble, that our lives might be full of fruit that would honor and glorify you. We pray these things in your name. Uh, just to encourage you, please, these guys that we've introduced you to this morning, uh, you know, these two young guys who are planting churches and their wives, and Jim, who, what he has to do is hard. I mean, it's hard to be on the road. It's easy to get discouraged when you think about all the places that want church planters and you, you travel the globe and can't find them. Encourage these guys this morning. Uh, speak words of love and encouragement to them uh, before you leave. Now, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, I mean, you can feel, you know, you can feel the energy in the room toward the idea that he is risen, that there's victory, that even in our shame, in our, as we limp along towards obedience, in our weakness, in our frailty, we have one, a hero who has conquered, and we're in him. But what that means is, is that with all of the tragedy and, um, and the fallout of what we read in Genesis 3, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, God no longer looks at you, uh, to condemn you, he now looks at you to bless you and to give you a spirit as he sends you out. And that's the promise of the benediction. So receive the benediction then as the Father's good words over your life and as the promises of, of his going with you into the mission that he's called you to and go and serve him. Uh, so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.